There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Okay, we're going to step through a gate marked Sahara Desert. <laughs> in Texas. So we're going to enter the Sahara Desert. That's correct. In Texas. And it's 640 acres. Well, that, like a, that, pasture, a square, yeah, that pasture that is about a square mile. No, that pasture is, is part of the 640 acres. I see. It's, it's, it's probably about uh, 150 acres. Got it. And how many scimitar horned orcs are in there? Uh, in that group, there are 22 adult females. Um, and I want to say there's 11 newborn calves. And there's nothing special about that rooster. There's one rooster. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that that's rooster. a regular rooster. The social <laughs> dynamic that's playing out over there, I'm interested in, too. Rooster. The, the rooster, rooster, rooster and a dog, and, and, the and dog then slightly the to the right is a bunch of orcs. <laughs> the rooster and the dog, best friends. <laughs> okay, so to introduce, uh, let me hear what you guys all, what your role is here and what you guys do. Uh, okay, I'll start off. Uh, my name is Stephen Fulton. I'm uh, the manager of the Bamberger Ranch. Um, I've been I've worked here for about 18 and a half years. Um, I've worked with the Scimitar Horned Oryx uh, for about 10 years now. Okay. They've been under my, my purview. So other than that, it, when it comes to ranch management, everything's up for grabs. Every job is mine if I'm, if I'm available. Got it. <laughs> 
I'm Lee Burton. I'm the Acting Director and Programs Manager for Conservation Centers for Species Survival and based in Austin, Texas. And Bamberger Ranch is one of our first members and has a great story and um, the Scimitar Horned Oryx and the founding of the Source Population Alliance, which is a consortium model that helped bring these animals back and ultimately led to their reintroduction in, in the wild in Chad. So when you say back, it's not back to Texas. No, that gets into the whole uh, topic of these animals are part of a meta population that are spread out in ex situ environments. So we have in, in that particular program, the Source Population Alliance, there's 10 different species, uh, most all ungulates, two cattle species. And the idea was to pick species that were endangered or even extinct in the wild, put them in ex situ settings over here, repopulate them, do genomics testing on them to ensure you don't get inbreeding, et cetera, so that they're sustainable build up their numbers within the hope that one day you can do things like have happened in Chad, reintroduce them. Mm -hmm. And we've had uh, three of our species have now been either put back or supplemented in the wild. Um, some of the other ones, it's not ripe yet. And so the idea is the settings here on a ranch like Bamberger are ideal conditions as close as you can get to matching what they have back at home in Sub-Sahara. The weather in Texas, the terrain, et cetera. Um, and additionally, the, the other big benefit of it is these animals were mostly, and Steve will tell you the whole story of how it started, but were mostly in zoos and a lot of them weren't faring well, not because the zoos are doing anything wrong, but just because of space constraints, just not having the, the normal social dynamic that you have when, you know, breeding, et cetera. And so putting them back out here has been um, an incredible benefit to the species. and has helped these populations grow where we can do things like that today and you know look at the future of doing uh, reintroductions. Uh, uh, the model's interesting and you know I'm sure you heard you know the story when they started trying to repopulate American bison on the Great Plains one of the places they found them was in the Bronx you know and sent them sort of, sort of like this irony of like loading them up in the Bronx and bringing them back out west you know. Yeah, and this is like on a much, much larger scale, right? It is. There's some other famous stories. There's a, uh, which is not one of our species, but the Mexican wolf. Um, I, and I'm not a geneticist, but um, I think you need three lines at least to be able to not have inbreeding. And so when they were doing that program back in the Southwest, they had two lines. And then there was a Canadian guy who had just on vacation, was driving through Tucson, saw an ad in the paper to pick up a wolf pup. No. Yes. Put it up, put it in his saddlebag. Got about an hour north or something, thought better of it. I don't know if he's pissing all over his bike or whatever the you know, hell it was doing anyway. And so he stopped, turned it over to like some sort of animal shelter. It turned out to be the third line. <laughs> <laughs> so, really? Yeah. I've never heard yeah. of that one. So uh, Dave Parsons, uh, who led that reintroduction effort on the really? Fish and Wildlife, oh. told me that story. And so, yeah, that's why they didn't have to bring in the uh, the northern subspecies in Yellowstone. So, wow. yeah, there's a lot of strange stories like that. And Warren? So I'm Warren Bluncher. I own and operate Warren Bluncher Wildlife Consulting Services and work uh, all over the U.S. and in several foreign countries. And part of my business is wildlife capture, and we specialized in that. But basically, we work with anything to do with land, water, and wildlife. But I'm very, very deeply involved with exotics and humane treatment, uh, 
the the stocking of ranches, uh, rebuilding of these animals, and and so we have a we have a company that does uh, uh, extensive wildlife captures. So I I've, I've been privileged enough to be on a lot of these ranches, like the Bamberger Ranch, and get to see firsthand what's really done, and, and help bring some of those animals back, and 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 help advise on their welfare and their their general well-being. So and Warren was also a retired uh, game warden. Parks and Wildlife. Oh, really? Okay. So I was a conservation officer, as you all know him, and a state game warden for Texas for 25 years, and sit on the Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, Whitetail uh, Advisory Board, and I sit on several disease boards that help formulate, and I testify quite a bit to, to wildlife disease issues and uh, try to get the, try to educate. That's the, the biggest uh, issue that I see in this wildlife world now is the, the, the separation between what the general public understands about wildlife management and, and what it really means and, and how many benefits a person that, that took a ranch like this and brought it back to the state it's in because they're shrinking fast. Mm -hmm. It's getting more and more of a, a challenge for generations to hold on to these ranches. And uh, these, these are really special places. Okay, so we're gonna jump in this pickup, go through the gate marked Sahara Desert, and then we're gonna go find a female that just dropped a calf within the last 48 hours and try to convince her to let us handle the calf and put an ear tag into it so they can keep track of it. Oh, here's some serious horns. So you can see, see a few of those. Oh, those yeah. Are, those those, are, those are coming up on about two weeks old. You can see the color of them. Now they're not white like the females. They're they're more of a, a tan, a beige color. Which, with this <laughs> dry grass, they blend in very well. I struggle to tell the males from the females on these things, man. It's like it has to do with it's the curve, difficult. the hook of the horn is uh, one of the things. This is all an all female herd. Oh, so that makes it even so, tougher. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> hard to find a male. <laughs> the males, the males are in different. Does Poncho do the feeding out of this truck? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh man, these are, well, look at the horn. Wow. Feed sack broke. So what's Jeez. the what's the oryx that uh, they you know I've done that I drew a tag to hunt the you know the off range New Mexico oryx. Gemsbach. Gemsbach. That's Gemsbach. That's Gemsbach. Gemsbach. Yeah. That's uh, southern cousin, cousin But it's Gemsbach oryx. Yeah. There's yes. four kinds. Yeah. And what, what are the, who are the other two? Arabians. Yeah. Arabian Cimentars. Gemsbach. And what's the other? Sables. Sables. Yeah. yeah. Sables. How stable are the other three? I mean, the other three besides these and guys. And they're foreign countries, you know. Sable's in pretty good shape. Sable's it's the least threatened. Um, I think all the other ones are of greater concern. So yeah. the Gems box is hurting on native ranch? Um, some. You don't see them as much as these guys, but yeah, they are. I don't know what I'm saying. Like, where they come from? Are they stable? It depends on what part of the country you're looking at. Some of them, the poaching's horrible on them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, those people are starving to death, so... Obviously, they're going to eat some of them, but where they're really protected, a lot of a lot of the game ranches now in in Africa were, and their concessions are, are game ranches, so they, they can protect them now, and they've got some good herds over there. The yeah. Gemsbach is in much better shape than the Scimitar. Yeah, yeah. In in a uh, if there were some males in here, would you see a lot more broken horns on everybody? That seems like some pretty no, exquisite horn length on those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, these are these are. This is my oldest herd of females. Um, so these these animals are 17, 18, 19 years old. Oh, okay. So oh, a lot of them are, uh, and then with coupled with that freeze, uh, 
two Februarys ago. We, we've lost quite a few horns on these older females. But in, in, most, in most cases, the females don't fight much, so they, they don't really have much use to, to battle and, and loot and break off horns. But when you, when you, the, the males the, do, though. When the males so got a broken have, horn, that's, is it more from fighting or, or freezing? For, for us, fighting. Okay, so they do do that. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that was just a misunderstanding. But the rule to that exception is that we've never been 10 below zero in some of this country. Yeah. So we had some of these, these true horns two, three months later just fall off of them. Got it. It was damaged. Uh, our ear damaged, the ears froze off of them. Yeah. And so uh, we had a, we had a, a right significant... There. You see this female separate? Yeah, that's from freezing. No, no, she's separate because... This is the one we're coming to look at. Oh, oh he's always saying she's only got one horn. Oh, yeah, the, the one horn, yes. That yeah, froze off. There, there he is. Right Sir, there. do you guys go with bull calf or bull calf? Bull yeah. calf. Male calf. So there's the calf right there. Yeah, he said she's oh. she's super protective, so she's basically standing over it. <laughs> so this is, this will be interesting. <laughs> how long oh, ago? Did, how long was charge? that calf born? Uh, I think yesterday afternoon. Oh, okay. So, alright. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now we're not sure if it's a male or female calf again because she's been super protective. Um, so, I'm gonna have to get out I mean, of the truck. Nah, if it's on your size, they, side, they just run away, right? I would, yeah, I would, no, I would, I would uh, be well, careful. He's got a good story about that. Uh, Corinne, I'd be careful. Keep, keep the truck between you and it. Yeah. Yeah. They are, oh, they look are, at that. They yeah, are very protective. Okay. So. Yeah. You got a bunch? He's growling at you. Yeah. They, uh, they're very, very vocal when they get agitated. So do you want some distraction, though? Uh, yeah. With this one, y'all have to let me and Poncho take care. All right. <laughs> wow, yeah. I'm a good volunteer. I would hate for y'all to get I have dove into the front of a truck before uh, with one of these narrowly, narrowly missing me. Um, so how do, they, how do they get uh, how do they get the hook in you when they're their horns? They'll, they'll put their head, their forehead, all the way down to the ground. Oh, so that's what they do. They come but in. They also they also use that horn like a club. Oh, they do. Uh, yeah. So they'll, they'll hit you with it. Um, they, then they'll hook you with those it. Horns, those horns are made out of filament. Oh, yeah. and that's how they feel lines. If they don't get a good hit on the line, just the, the horn itself coming out of the wood. It's hard to concentrate. <laughs> <laughs> we'll lose uh, a filament inside the flesh. Hold on back up because I'm you distracted get, by that you thing. You get stuck with one of these. They're serious business to get taken care of. Or you can lose your arm or your leg. Oh, yeah. yeah. But what were you saying about with lions? So when they get a hit on a lion or, or whatever the predator is after them, if they don't kill them, a lot of times just the horn itself the, see the filaments hanging off that horn right yeah, there? Yeah. It'll stay inside that wound. And yeah, it, yeah. It'll get infected and they'll die. Yeah. So you're asking about it's like, it. like like splintered yes. uh, like splintered Just PVC like a sliver. In South yeah, Texas. yeah. Got it. That calf's only about two days old. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's gonna stomp yeah, her own calf yesterday. See her. See her. Every year, this one is very protective. How many calves has she produced? Uh, every year for the last, at least the last ten years. Might have missed a year in there somewhere. Are you guys good. doing natural breeding or AI? Oh, yeah, no, it's all natural. 
natural except for it's arranged marriages. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I've got I've got a herd bull that I want, you know, to pass the genes along and he'll get a he'll get a herd of females and then the other herd of females has a different genetic background so I'll it'll get a, a different bull. Maybe you you go this puerta por this side and this side Mikachu reverse and make more close and maybe more bueno. Okay. Christy, if you want us to move off, it's easier just with the... No, no, it's, okay. it's not going to be easy in any way, any way or form. Hop in there. I just formulated the plan. <laughs> Drive over it. <laughs> Drive over it, and it's just <laughs> under the truck. There it is. It's a little boy, I think. Yeah. It's the feeling I'm good. Feels like, is it? Yeah. That's what it feels like. Future ball. Future yeah. ball. <laughs> All right, so this is just a tag. Take my daughter to get her earrings. This is basically <laughs> the same thing. This is the only male I'm going to keep this year, just because, as I said earlier, the geneticist that's doing the work on these animals thought this female was of particular interest genetically. So, so typically, so a lot it. of times we'll take and we'll take the tag and we'll pull the tag out like this to get air behind it, uh -huh. and it'll prevent it from getting sometimes infected. But they're not bad about getting infected at all. Yeah. Good, healthy, strong young bull kid. Right. You want to pass it around? So you'll. Anybody else want to hold the kid? Oh, I'd love so to. So will, will you guys? <laughs> yeah. Will you guys like ban? My kids are all grown so now. So I'll, hand, I'll hand it to you. Oh, okay. Then that way, I can't get away. From no, you. Lost no, my no, neck. No, all the all the all the kids with this bull kids are. Oh, little fella. <laughs> well, I, guess. Kids, I'll, I'll, I'll sell them as is. Okay, got it. And got once, it. of course, once they're older. Got it. So and I feel right now like we're snuggling and he's loving this. Is his heart rate like way up? No, his heart rate's up, believe me. Oh, it is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't have the scary The longer you hold them, the more stress yeah. they Is that right? All right, so much. we can, yeah. uh, anybody else want to take a turn? Corinne? You know you want to hold one of these yeah, things. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Sure, hold on. That, this, there's really only two times a year that we have this kind of contact with them, and that's this time of year, and it's usually only about mm -hmm. six weeks, a six-week period, um, where they're where they're birthing. Yeah. Because um, I put the I put the both males in with the, each one of the herds um, at the same time of year. So. Well, how do you know the how, how do you get all the females to cycle at the same time? They they tend to cycle together. Oh really? Yeah. So they once fall you, into once unison. You, once you put yeah. them in, once you if you if you don't have them reproducing constantly, um, they tend to cycle together. So really? oh, uh, in that six week period, they'll all cycle, and they'll all get pregnant. Kind of huh. like women. That's been, yeah. That's been my experience. Now in in a, in, a, in a wild population, um, where you got the bulls with them constantly, yeah, I'm sure the cycle their cycles are are, are offset quite a yeah. bit. Huh. And a lot of their past ranges were all, their breeding cycles through evolution were, were synchronized with uh, vegetation growth, Rains. and that that was their biological signal that what they were going to do they're going to do, and so it's kind of the evolution has taken it different. This is a different country, but they're still like you said they're still evolutionary. They're still locked in on it, and uh, yeah. it's amazing. That's why you see all those animals giving birth on that grass. It's a hell of a feat. I mean, from four years ago, there being none in their native range, to now there's 150 there, yeah. and they're having calves, and those calves are considered, you know, of native stock. Yeah. So they're no longer and, and considered like, endangered in the wild. Like this, this baby calf, let's just say that he individually is tested or there's a sense of what his genetics is. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that he would be a chosen one to I hope so. Said? I'd sure. love okay. for that to happen. Yeah. Okay. And th these animals, uh, I, I tagged him for that purpose. 
um, because I, again, that that site, that dam was was told to me that of particular interest genetically. So my plan is to keep all of her offsprings as, as, for as long as she reproduces. Mm -hmm. I wish I had known that you know four or five years ago because <laughs> I'd had a lot more of her offspring represented on the ranch. The mm. other aspect of having animals out in a facility like this and multiple facilities and this idea of this metapopulation is that we've had to rethink the number of individuals that you have to have to keep your genetic variability. Mm. Um, and the goal is in this program over the next hundred years to maintain at least 90 percent and in the zoo world if you keep them only in zoos just because they don't have the space to do that i mean they uh, there's something like a total of 158 of the aza zoos they had roughly about 11,000 acres and and just within our program it's closer to 100,000 acres mm -hmm. and so the number of animals you can get you know they used to think maybe you need a few hundred couple hundred you know, now they know you need well over a thousand, fifteen hundred, even even two thousand, maybe or more. So that that is another aspect of it that you know having them in places like this beyond just individual genes, you don't want to lose variability at all if you can. Yeah. And a lot of times zoos run into to, uh, breeding problems. Just some species just don't won't breed in the zoo. You know, they yeah. they will, but they don't like it, and so they they miss times and times are years and years are decades and so you can get behind quick so when you have a free range situation and and individuals like he's keeping track of and and, and switching out to keep that variability in there they that's there's where the true the true herds do well and they're they're much more likely to do better when they right. go back into the wild being in a wild or semi-wild setting like this you know and and having those traits yeah there's going to be some fighting sometimes whatever but obviously that serves them well you know, when they go back in versus a, a more docile animal that's, you know, several generations removed in a, a zoo environment and whatever the epigenetics is, however all that works, or, you know, just um, just trained behavior not being passed on. So these animals are, are likely to do well, and, and they have so far. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. 
So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs and here's one of those buddies max not the dog but the buddy i've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states u.s and canada different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees and it just doesn't stop working i'm a fan for life get 20 percent off your first purchase using code meat eater so go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more all right, now that we've visited the uh, the young, you guys go by calf? What do you, is it bull, cow, calf? What is it in Oryx? Yeah, bull, cow, calf. Really? Is that universally accepted, bull, cow, calf? I believe so. All right, now that we've visited the cow, calf unit of the scimitar horned Oryx, ex- like, walk me through um, how that, like, walk me through how that animal fits into the broader picture of what happens with the conservation center's for species survival, like like where it fits into the hierarchy of activities. Sure. So the scimitar horned oryx is one of the 10 species in what's known as the Source Population Alliance. And that's one of the programs under Conservation Centers for Species Survival, or C2S2 for short. And we have a number of different programs. Um, <clears throat> that one is focused, so other species... Um, including cheetah, uh, red wolf, southern black rhino. The Source Population Alliance focuses just on ungulate species. And it was originally four species, which were the ones that we kind of discussed earlier and were the most critically endangered, or in the case of the scimitar horned oryx, was extinct in the wild. It also included the addicts and dama gazelle. Uh, and then the fourth species was the sable antelope, which is not, that's actually doing fairly well. <clears throat> they were the original four, and the concept was created back in 2005. Uh, there was a renowned scientist named David Wilt, a Smithsonian. He was a reproductive physiologist, mm-hmm. 
and did some great work, uh, including artificial insemination, et cetera. He noticed, among others, that these animals, these ungulate species, were just not doing as well in a zoo environment as they hoped. So they looked at that. They were concerned because of the space constraints, uh, not having normal social dynamics, this idea of you needed to have, if you wanted to keep them alive in these XC2 settings, having a metapopulation. Explain XC2 and NC2. Yeah. I know that from archaeology, but right. I've never heard it with animals. It, it's Yeah, it's one of these sort of terms that sounds fancy. It's pretty simple. So <laughs> NC2 is just their native range, their native habitat uh-huh. where they live. So again, with with these guys, the three we just mentioned, the scimitar, addicts, and dama gazelle, that's sub-Sahara Africa, okay? And so um, that would be NC2. XC2 is anywhere removed out of that. It's not their home range, okay? And so the idea was we wanted to have, you know, the zoo world was set up for way back when for a lot of reasons, Um but the conservation aspect several decades ago was there was, uh, I guess you'd say, re-energized, refocused. And so these species survival plans were created to try to maintain these populations in an XC2 environment for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons was to have an assurance population. If something happened to the animals in their NC2, and the scimitar is a great example of that, if they go extinct, you don't want to lose the species altogether if they get extirpated in that case. So these species survival plans were set up, and these animals were bred for several decades in the zoo world, and they did a great job. Again, they they had the stud books. They knew the lineages. You know, they they knew, hey, I'm going to take this bull and breed it with this female over here. But they, they were space-constrained. And also, again, it removed the, the natural conditions that just take place and how these species interact and compete, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, survival to fittest, all that stuff. So David Wilt noticed this. And so he and some other scientists got together in some of our facilities and said, hey, let's take some of these animals. Let's put them in, you know, places like, and Bamberg already had scimitar horned oryx, which is a great story in and of itself that predates this. But let's put them in these facilities where they have, you know, big ranges that are not truly, they're not in C2, but they're, they closely mimic where they come from. And, and so, you know, if we put them in there, we think they're going to do a lot better. You know, they're going to breed, their numbers are going to build up. Um, and, and our motto at C2S2 is grow, optimize, return. So, you know, grow the herd, optimize the genetics, and then hopefully, you know, when possible, return them into their native habitats. Do you guys feel the last part of that, the return part, uh, that strikes me as being immensely important. But you hear people often, like, you hear people hold the belief that, like, well, it, it can't be, like, let's say we take the scimitar horned oryx, which, which effectively, if I'm not mistaken, like, it went extinct. Yes. In the wild. Yeah, in the 1990s was when they think that the last ones in the wild were so gone. It ceased to be a wild animal. Yes. Like, I feel that you couldn't then say, like, well, yeah, but we have them in Texas, so that's good enough. I completely agree. But that seems like a sentiment you hear a lot. Well, um, I think maybe you hear that among some people that just like to have them as, I hate to say ornaments or, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. just property. We clearly don't view it that way because we're a conservation organization. Yeah, you, rolled the, you rolled the return into it. Exactly. So when this, when this who's the guy you're talking about, the, the geneticist? or uh, David Wilt. He was a reproductive biologist. So his interest was in things that, his interest was in species that were imperiled. Absolutely. On their native. Yeah. Like that, that, was sort yeah. of the, that was sort of the thing that they had to, that had to be there for 
him to want to do absolutely yeah. and and he was from smithsonian and they've done a lot of great work they do our genomics testing right now um and you know they did the first ai on a cheetah a couple of years ago and we're, they, we're so you guys have what we should go and look at the cheetahs corinne where uh, are the cheetahs well they're running around <laughs> out here somewhere steve can find um uh there are a variety of facilities really uh, yeah yeah, there's and they're spread all over. So we're we're mostly North America and with a heavy emphasis in Texas again uh-huh. because yeah, you yeah. know climate and what have you, ranch, range. But cheetahs are here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and and breeding them. I and that that was another program that was a success. Uh, that was about ten years ago. Again, kind of the same story. But cheetahs, an infinitely smaller gene pool, correct? That's correct because there were two founder events with the cheetah. One was about a hundred thousand years ago. They don't know for sure what happened, but, you know, population got very small. And then about 12,000 years ago, it happened again, which is why you can take... You mean in Africa? In Africa, okay, which yeah. is why you can take, um, you know, a skin from one cheetah and graft it on to another one that's, you know, two countries over and it'll take it. They're that closely related. What? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Which, Wait, they went through a major bottleneck. Yes, twice. And so that's why... And those timelines are just... In, insane to think about. Yeah. I mean, in geologic terms, that's recent. Blink of an eye, right? Right, but. exactly. And um, well, I, is, there, is there an estimate how tight the bottleneck was? Uh, in terms of number of individuals, I don't know off the top of my head. I've heard some. I don't know if they know exactly. I mean, even humans went through that. Yeah, yeah. You know, 70,000 humans like or something. Like mitochondrial Eve Right, and all that. exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, so cheetahs are already in a bad state. And then, of course, what's happened in the wild. And so... This idea of, you know, breeding them and, and the North American population, it was, I want to say it was struggling, but not doing as well as they needed it to do. So we came up with this idea, we collectively, um, the scientists in our facilities about, hey, let's set up these breeding centers, share best practices, you know, do all these things. And, and cheetahs successfully bred, their numbers shot way up in just five years, population, I think nearly doubled from the North American population. So that was a success. And so we saw this model replicating um, over and over and over again. Now, every species is different, right? Mm -hmm. But But, Sorry, could you explain what constitutes the North American cheetah population? Um, Well, (laughs) that gets complicated, but uh, historically they were in uh, AZA zoos. Um, so, What's uh, that mean? Association of Zoos and Aquariums. That's the big organization. Um, it used to be almost all zoos that were accredited or part of that. There's another organization, uh, which is ZAA, which is kind of a splinter group. Um, but in any case, all there, there's cheetahs who are in that. And we have stud books on them, and it's um, I think it's several hundred. I think it's over 500 now uh, between those those two groups. But then you have all of the illegal wildlife trade and depending on what the laws are, you know, for each individual species. So there's more cats obviously out there than that. Um, we're actually on that. We're trying to assist with an effort to what's called integrate these stud books between the various organizations and international in the hopes of getting a better model to manage these animals. Yep. Right. And, and make breeding recommendations. We've done some genomics testing already, and to do more of it, because for, for them, it's especially important. You know, like Steve was saying, he's got this special scimitar, right? Well, if you find one or two cheetahs, you know, you may not be able to find those genes almost anywhere else, and you don't want to lose those. Yeah, that, that's a question. That's something I need to understand before I can really go much farther here. Is, uh, are, are you guys familiar with the, the Seek a Deer in yeah. Maryland? 
Okay, so they got now in the Delmarva Peninsula. So the east shore of Chesapeake Bay. I mean, they got what, 10,000 of them now or something? They have an absolutely unknown amount of deer because there's no way to there's no way to measure them. But what they're able, yeah, they got a pile of them. And I, they're I, able to go to, you could, I've had a guy take me out in a boat. The island's barely there anymore. But he's able to be like, you know, Bob Johnson had six on that island. And that's it. He got them and he got them from some guy in England. And the guy in England got them from some guy there. And those six swam to the beach and now there's 10,000 of them. There's no like, and then some other guy let some go, right? It's just like, it, you know where they came from. But ten thousand. But how many? Could like, be how many people? How many people cut loose a cheetah or cut loose? A, I mean, how many people go to Africa and bring home a scimitar horned oryx? The Ohio Zoo, right? Well, or the private collection, rather. That all of a sudden, cl- well, close to twenty years around. ago, the the importation of these animals was um, basically cut off. I think primarily because of disease considerations. Mm-hmm. So, how many years ago? Uh, I think it was close to 20 now. Oh, so so, that, that's when they... Yeah, so it, it's actually a problem in some... Like, for instance, uh, there's about f- a little bit less than 40 southern black rhinos in North America. We manage that population in conjunction with the International Rhino Foundation. Okay. And we need some more bloodlines, but importing them is almost impossible now because of political situation. But on the ungulate side... Um, it's it's just as difficult because you can't get them in. So you, you kind of have what you have now. But what, yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to get at is, do you now know? Let me give you another let me give you another example. Um, in the late 1800s, when people were thinking to themselves, "Holy shit!" Like the American bison is going to go extinct. They would write letters to each other and be like, "He has four, he has three, right?" And you kind of knew, like, well, he got his that way. He got his that way. Uh, how is it? Is there a, is there like in Texas an unknown number of times when someone managed to tr- ship a scimitar horned oryx to Texas, or can you be like, oh no, there was that event, that event, and that event that led them to be dispersed well, around? The state. Well, well, population dynamics change some of that it, in, in itself, unbeknowing to us. It's the population dynamics of these areas were changing. You had uh, you had perilous storms hit. You had uh, equipment failures where they escaped, like you're talking about on the island. So so as as time moved forward with the escapes and the evolution of wildlife diseases, a lot of these endeavors got more and more complicated. What endeavors? Uh, where you had someone had a pen failure, a pasture failure, or a ranch failure, fence, water gap, whatever, and they escaped. And in that period of time, population was growing, but at the same time, evolution of wildlife diseases were changing right in front of our, our eyes. No, I, I, I got to re-ask my question. Wait, I think I know. I'm you, not explaining the question. Let right. me. I think I know where you may be going with this. So, except, I thought of a really clean way to do it. Let, let okay, just, go ahead. How many times did a human being, how many times did human beings collect oryx in the Sahara Desert and drive and, and fly them, ship, sail them, whatever, and cut them loose in Texas? Once? 
Um, I don't know the exact. Do you know the answer to that? I, I do not know. Uh, okay. okay, so it was, a, but, it was enough well, that no one knows. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It, it depends on the species, right? So if they weren't on the ESA prior to this importation ban, if they weren't on the ESA, then yeah, you could import kind of whatever back in the day in Texas. So I don't think they were tracked. Now the zoos tracked them very closely because they had stud books. And if they were in a species survival plan, they know exactly. And, you know, they exchange them and, you know, for breeding reasons, all that. But the other species that came in prior to, you know, this ban, yeah, we don't really know. But, but they weren't thousands and thousands no. of events like this. These were these were very well-founded connections in a lot of cases mm -hmm. and, and limited numbers of imports. They weren't they, they weren't just across the country importing them like you like you one may have think. But what happened is is if you if you look at the the habitat, the terrain and topography of Texas, if you spin someone around and you can put them in a certain part of Texas, they can't hardly tell if they're in Africa or Texas. So what happened? The synonymous habitat, the weather belts were were very conducive to those animals making it. So boom, 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 the, 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 the stool went from three legs to five legs to 10 legs to 12 legs. So it wasn't hundreds of events. It was the responsibility or the preclude, however you want to look at it, of a group of ranchers that started this from, 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 a, from a limited number of individuals. They sold them, they traded them, and then you throw in the, the escapes, the, the other things that perpetuate them because we've got in some of these counties we've got free range and exotics mm -hmm. there, no one really owns them but do you know i'll put it to rest like i understand that the, the answer is not as clean as i'd like it to be but what was the first year that that someone what was the first year that a, that someone delivered an or a, a scimitar horned oryx to the United States of America? Is I don't it, know that. So that's not that. even. I don't oh, know oh. that. I do know that in the 1930s, uh, I think it was the San Antonio Zoo. Um, I forget his first name, Mr. Friedrich. He got some surplus animals they they had and put them on a couple of ranches around here. Okay. And then it wasn't too long after that. I'm sure you're familiar with the King Ranch. Yep. Right. They got some exotics down here as well. And there were a couple of other famous um, exotic ranches in Texas. There's one in the hill country called the Y.O. Ranch. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these animals just came, you know, they were there. And so it that, that was around when this was yes, becoming and, a thing. And then you had yeah. maybe some surplus animals from zoos or whatever happened way back. And, you know, they were however put to pasture in any certain places the scimitar is a different story though because there was only a, a smattering of those animals and i'll let steve tell the whole story but <clears throat> zoos a few zoos around the country had them and basically almost the entire world's population was gathered up and yes so uh here on the ranch uh it was in uh 1984 um now don't quote me on that it might have been 85 um, but Mr. Bamberger was a, uh, a board member for the San Antonio Zoo. Mm -hmm. um, and they they had the grand meeting to discuss the plight of the scimitar Ondorix and a couple of the, the other ungulates that we work with with the Source Population Alliance. Um, and he was privy to that as a board member. Um, and he volunteered, basically volunteered, uh, to offer his ranch up as a place where they can bring bring all the known genetics to one spot to mm -hmm. begin this species survival program. Um, so at that time, or short after that meeting, um, they brought, and as, as a member of the AZA, 
uh, they brought uh, 28 animals, and those 28 animals represented 31 different bloodlines to begin the, the species survival program right here on the ranch. And it, was that the sort of, was that like the Texas bottleneck of that species, or was there probably quite a bit more that weren't included in that initial roundup? Well, there likely were other animals that were not AZA animals. Uh-huh. Right? But that not were... many. I mean, that was pretty much yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he literally saved the scimitar horned oryx. But that seems incredibly diverse for such a, you know, very few animals. But, right? but, they, but they were very successful at breeding and per- perpetuating. Whereas in the zoo environment, they were there. We knew they were there. We had genetics uh, going on that, that you could see and touch, but not to the extent of what they did when they put them on, a, on an open range, quote, ranch, whether high fence or low fence. Most of them are behind high fences because they'll get away from you. But, but the, the perpetuation of them was astounding how well they did. And that, that's almost uh, exactly right. We were fortunate because there are that many bloodlines and they had come from different places. There were some risks there because, you know, what if we'd had a disease outbreak or something and, you know, you got your eggs in one basket, which is why this idea and why we use the term metapopulation is that you've got a population here, over here, over here, and together they make up this greater population, which is an, um, a reservoir, if you will, an assurance population. Um, but, but, you know, thank goodness that, they did that because it's you know possible this animal would not be around if that were not the case. Not be around, period, not just in Texas. Correct. And I think there were some other individuals, um, maybe in Europe and some other places, but uh, this was certainly North America and, and may have been, I don't know, Steve, if you know, the largest and only sizable population in the world. I mean, it was certainly a, a cornerstone of it. So it's very important to what you were talking about, the return aspect, uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, that very possibly, if not likely, would not have occurred with, without someone like Mr. Bamberger's vision to do that. And, and some of this was not just chance. The, these, these, these group of individuals, they, they knew of the synonymity of Texas versus Africa, and they theorized if they could just get them here, they would they would perpetuate because of the synonymous of, of the two countries, the habitat, the, the temperatures and all that. And of course they were right. You know how it seems like you hear more and more about these, particularly over the last decade is like the idea of a seed bank, right? Where you have, where they, they built that one in North. I don't know. I think that's right. Nor- Iceland Norway. Or Norway or, or yeah. Something. Somewhere yeah. where they, they have this, they built this perfectly. That's right. Stable underground climate and they just store seeds there Correct. right that there'd be some global catastrophe yep. and then you'd start from scratch right plant stuff in the ground um that with with mammals i'm guessing that it doesn't work to go and uh have like a bank of frozen embryos no or we like, actually we we do do that you can do that yeah they don't so, like lose you know what i mean like without sort of a continuity of like we watch today, right? We go out and there's a mother and she, you know, you, you want to get her calf, put your tag in it. She doesn't want you to do that, right? She presumably picked where she was going to give birth. Like this is stuff she is exposed to, has done it before, learned from it. Um, I imagine if you thaw that stuff out and do it, like you probably, you have to lose something. 
like a herd, like a sort of like herd dynamic knowledge base or something right, is gone. Right. So you're speaking on learned behavior. Yeah. Versus, yeah. That's what I mean. Like, versus, you know what I mean? Like how important is it to have, cause I can picture like, if you look like, I never give animals and zoos any, I don't give them any credit. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, okay, there it is, but it's not right. It, it right. is, but it's not. Well, you know I think it, it's species specific. Uh-huh. It, it is. And it's a different, yeah. it's, it's all a different theater uh, versus what there, there's, there's great merit to zoos, but they have their limits, and the, the 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 issues with the property having the propensity to look like, act like, see like, function like the open range. There's no substitute for mm-hmm. it because they do a lot of different things out there. They don't do in a captive situation. Or, or, oh, yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's the thing. I, and maybe it's probably not easily answered, but well, there's some species like wolves where, as far and I'm you know I'm not a wolf biologist, but. If you turn them loose, they just kind of know what to do. Oh, right. Uh, like you could thaw them out yeah, and turn them loose. Right. Go With cats, that's not necessarily the case. The mother has to teach them how to hunt. I'm talking about big cats, anyway, yep, okay. right? So, it, but to your point, I mean that's that's relevant. But yeah, we we do do um, was it oocyte capture? You know, certain species and sperm banking, um, and even if the species doesn't go extinct you want to keep some of those genetic traits. Like, for example, we have some rhinos that, you know, are have reproductive pathologies or, you know, older, whatever, but mm-hmm. they might have some valuable traits. Well, we can't breed them, but um, as AI techniques, artificial insemination get developed, having a sperm bank, that becomes very useful in the future, right, to reintroduce those genetics. So that animal, the line of that animal is not lost. So e- even if the species doesn't go extinct, that's still important. But yeah, obviously there, you know, there's some other dynamics in there about behavior and training and, you know. Um, yeah, some of these species, you, you, you have to maintain animals on the ground doing what they do in order to make that egg bank, seed bank. That's right. A, an actual resource. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, although even with the newer techniques, there's some new organizations that are formed about talking about trying to bring back the woolly mammoths. Oh, and, I know, yeah. man. It's just... <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> are you guys into that or does that annoy you guys? Um, let me put it this way. <coughs> there, <laughs> it, it's not what we do. Yeah, okay? that's good. That's um, good. However, there are maybe some advantages of that in terms of what you learn sure. and some applications genetically. Yeah. Because they're not bringing back the woolly mammoth. Well, they're, they're messing with an Asian elephant right, you, to eventually accumulate yeah. a bunch of traits where you can be like, right. that's probably a little bit what it looked like. Right. So, but although you never know what could happen in the future. Well, right? this is why so. it is a little annoying. I, I, <laughs> yeah. But there's stuff blinking out right now. Right. It's like, we have a thing we don't even, you know, we have a thing that went extinct, I don't know, 13, 20,000 years ago for unknown causes. But meanwhile, 50% of the, you know, 50% of the mammals on the planet have a sort of viable pathway to extinction. And we're, and then now you got all these like celebrity investors in this whole mammoth project. I mean, well, or, or even we haven't, we haven't sequenced all of our animals yet in the SPA. So there's an immediate need, you know, for that. And, you know, they're still alive and most of them are still in the wild. So absolutely. Um, you know, there, again, there are some techniques that I think will be very important that they're going to yeah. learn from. Yeah, it's like so, the argument, like, if it wasn't for NASA, we wouldn't have Teflon. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, like, but, but they put all that money into pan coatings. Yeah. 
They probably have yeah. a hell of a pan coating. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we read about stuff every single day, right? It's like, and, and by well, the this way. got collected 100, 100 years ago. It's been sitting in this categorized yeah. shelf. And then all of a sudden, somebody's like, well, we have this new thing. <laughs> yeah, Let me exactly. take a look at that old copper light. Oh, my God, there's a rattlesnake in there. Yeah, no, yeah. that's true. That's true. Uh, but it's like, I'd love to know the hierarchy of needs of the preservation of species, right? Because you, you take an animal that has this very known uh, uh, system of learned behavior. Like, I, I have to teach my young how to build the nest. I have to nurture a bunch of eggs to get some to hatch. I have to then teach these little baby birds how to fly and and we know that doesn't happen or, without like, the parent. Or, but, but also things that are just so much like, if there's not water here, go look over there. Yeah. Like that's not carried in an egg. Right. Yeah, but hopefully that that's a smell thing yeah. and goes, yeah. right? I mean, I, I th- there's some species that we yeah. know, right? Like the, the sandhill crane, right? Is like that thing wants to do everything but live. I just realized I said sandhill crane instead of whooping crane. Some of those behaviors can be taught, I think, by animal caretakers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's probably a limit there. So, um, you know, well, but- any any time you alter their their natural learning ability, you're influencing possibility what they're going to do in the future as far as survivability. There's a lot of belief that if they if they can't do it on their own, they can't do it. And maybe maybe their their history is uh, is dictated. But but the 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 thing that we do know now, the and I'll go back to the zoos versus the free range. The both of those places have have great purpose, but the the free range situation like we were in today, even though it's an enclosure, it's it's so much closer to what they're supposed to be doing, and they know it and they do well and they respond well from it. Yeah, and that's reflected by like a very tangible result, right? Which is yeah. offspring. Well, and look at the ages of those animals where we were at today. That that have we influenced that? Obviously, we have. But but again, when when you have that scenario, and they're not in cages or pens, and cages isn't a fair term for an ungulate like that, they're just going to do better. But but some of this was not by accident on the scimitars. There were people that knew if they could get them to Texas, they felt like they were going to propagate and do well. And those those few individuals with some other caring individuals were right. And this, this is really a success story as he, as he pointed out early, cause these things were, they, they were gone basically. Yeah. Now the next species might not do exactly what this species did yeah, because they're, they're all different biologically and they're different sociologically, how they roam and how they, how they, uh, they, they do. So, so to answer your question, it's always better, obviously, if you have the species and they can learn from their own. But we have gotten a lot better. And I teach a couple of animal behavior classes at a couple of universities. And like in the bird world, they've learned this. Like an avian ecologist I work with of training these birds, you know, how to look for threats, right? They, oh, is that right? Okay. Oh, yeah. It's amazing what they've done with that now. <laughs> huh. You know, you hear this, you know, alarm, this is this, it means it's an owl or this kind of hawk. Um, and there, there's a famous example. They tried to introduce thick-billed parrots, I think it was in the 80s, back into the uh, southeastern Arizona. And um, I think you've been hunting down there, coos deer, right? And they put them in there, and they were great. They had done great, except they had no idea that hawks were a threat. Yeah. They all got wiped out. That was a, That's like, I'm sort of like pulling all these little snippets from 
things I know from native wildlife in the U.S. and trying to like interject them here. But when you talk to people who are involved in the recovery of the American wild turkey, sort of the 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 aha moment was you can't put pen raised turkeys down. Yep, exactly. They just can't. They're, they're cut them in forty eight hours. They're all dead. You know, right. just, they get annihilated. And well, you had to put you had to put like wild reared. You had to put wild reared birds on the ground if they're going to have any chance of hatching right. up. Of, of, and, of have, having any idea about how to avoid predators. And, and that, another that, iconic thing about the scimitars that I find very interesting is sometimes we're our worst on enemies. We have caring individuals, knowledgeable individuals. They bring them over here. They do good. And lo and behold, we get a regulation that almost sent them backwards again. Mm, well, yeah, I wanted to have you tell that story, but let me add, uh, hold that because that, that's important to hear. Um, but I got one more, I got another question just like particular to the scimitar and horn oryx and, and how, like, like, let, so let's say here in the U S you have people who are globally aware, right? They, and globally ecologically aware, they understand that this species is imperiled on its native range. It's a, it's a candidate for extinction, right? Um, at what point do, do those individuals or like your organization, at what point do you wind up f- forming some form of contact with the government or, or the, 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 the proper agency in one of these countries where the country is perhaps almost a failed state, right? right? Like if you were to right now recognize that there's a species in Afghanistan, I'm sure there are many. There are. Um, yeah. So you're like, okay, the, the snow leopard ranges in Afghanistan you know, at, at what point does someone go and, and introduce themselves to the Taliban to say, we understand you have a problem and we'd like to help? Yeah, but that's got to be like a tricky... It's very tricky. And so... Because you've already got so much money into it. Yeah, and so I, I asked this question a while back with the cheetah, uh, with some scientists, and it gets into politics. It gets into, you know, these species oftentimes, particularly animal like a cat like that, that will, you know, in some cases have very large territories, may cross boundaries. You've got different laws and some of them it's like, well, we'll do reintroductions. No, we only want native, you know, uh, born animals here. So there's all kinds of things. So typically what ends up happening is you have to have multiple organizations involved who are working together and, and clearly one or two on the ground. <clears throat> so in Chad, where the scimitars were reintroduced, there's Sahara Conservation Fund mm-hmm. really was were the guys on the ground who put this together. Uh, but they had to have financial backing and, and the whole program was a success because of the Environment Agency of Abu Dhabi. You know, and they helped lead this, put the resources in, you know, they kept, they had their own stock of scimitars. So you, you have to have buy-in and then they had to go get buy-in from the locals, you know, because yeah. these are on pastoral lands. There's domestic livestock running around. So yeah, it is tricky. And so you have to have a lot of buy-in. And, you know, we found this out here, as you well know, from reintroducing like the wolf here. Oh boy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the, fir- the the learnings they got from that, the first ones, um, the red wolf was the first one they did was, and then the, the, you know, the gray wolf, the Mexican wolf is that you've got to have buy-in from the state agencies and then from local landowners, people are going to have to deal with that. And you have to have a comprehensive plan to make it all work. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that, you're going to run into problems. So I think we know a lot more about that than we used to. But this is why, even though we may have enough numbers of a lot of these species, if the conditions aren't right on the ground, then, you know, there's no point in reintroducing them at that point. Do you have, uh, can you think of examples of, of animals where 
you're poised to do a reintroduction, but the situation on the ground is just not like you're in a holding pattern because of the political climate, whatever. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, in terms of numbers of animals, yeah, um, there's several. I mean, you know, the cheetah is one example where certainly there's some possibilities there. But again, given the political situation and different laws, on, and again, we're, we're not the ones, my organization is not the one that does the reintroduction, yeah, I got to be you. clear about yeah. that, right? You don't just show up and say, here's no. what you people need. No, yeah. no. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's several species. Cheetah would be one of them. You know, uh, and, and then certain. the and then the other element that we haven't talked about, but it's a major element is is conflict with people. Mm -hmm. Some of these species are not viewed as we're saving the species. The classic example of that was the reintroduction of the wolf. There were big support to do that until the public, the ranchers, got into it and it got in conflict. Mm -hmm. And and it and it has remained in conflict ever since. And uh, the the dynamics of the population swelling and growing. We're talking about Montana, Texas is going through it. All all these western states are going through this. So some of these species, there are other lines to walk, and they may not get that chance because of that. Well, it doesn't doesn't even need to be a, a ungulate versus a predator, right? That's like, exactly I mean, right. The Rocky Mountain elk that's exactly right. is a big issue with a lot of ranching communities. Right? And so it's, are buffalo, if you talk to those ranchers. And oh, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, it's not even... Um, competition right. for that, feed. That's like recovering your own... That's like recovering your own native wildlife where you have the animals, but you just don't have the public willpower. And, and the real truth may be there are just some species that aren't going to have the graces because of, because of these issues we're talking about right now. And then you get in even other issues, like you brought in the bison, we've looked at that, is you have domesticated bison. Mm -hmm. They've got cattle genes. Well, you don't want those in a wild population, you know, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, and so I, how do like, you manage I, that? I don't want to stray too far, but I totally disagree, man. I think if it looks okay. like one, I think if it look, at this <laughs> well, point. Well, there's people make that argument. At this point, if it yeah. looks like one, let's go with it. So then yeah. you'd want the woolly mammoth brought back. No. Because it looks, well, it's going to look but like I it, don't, maybe. but I'm saying you wind up being that you wind up, you have like Vermeer, so they have genetically pure ones, Yellowstone, they got genetically pure ones, Vermejo. There's just not that many of them. Meanwhile, you got, well, here's you got the one, half a million of them. You got the, half a million of them on the continent. Here, here's the one. 7,000 are up to snuff. The real truth may be you can't get them back pure again. And, and, and buffalo's a, a, a perfect class of that, an example of that. It, you start looking at how many of these buffalo have cattle genes in them. Lots of them do. But can you look at them and tell? No. Not not no. every time. And I, if I was anti, that's listen, right. If, if I was anti that's bison right. recovery, that's which right. I'm not. If I, I was anti bison recovery, I would be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'd do like a totally mock a Machiavellian move, and I would be like, oh no no no, I'm all for it, but they have to be genetically pure. That's right. That's how I would win my fight. Yeah. Well, if I didn't want it to happen. Exactly right. The, the one caveat to that is that, um, in, in some places. They are selecting bison to be more domesticated, yeah. and so you can imagine Less over hump, more rump. That's yeah, right. <laughs> and so yeah. over a long period right. of time, you know, if that gets into um, Dale Irwin, I think was his name. He was the UC Davis professor who was like the foremost bison expert. That was his concern. 
Yeah, that it so, wasn't that it was like right. my, it was like my comment about the right. zoo animal so looked I, like it, but right. it wasn't it. So I understand yeah. what you. In fact, the dama gazelle actually there's a. They thought for a while it was a subspecies. There's two colors. There's one that's a predominantly kind of burn orange looking, and there's one that's pure white. And they thought, well, it's you know different gene or the subspecies. It's not. It's a phenotype. Got it. Right. So, but had that been the case, like, do you mix those? Do you not? You know, and yeah. so I understand where you're coming from on that. Um, and unfortunately, because the more we learn about genetics and genomics, like there used to just be one species of black rhino. Then they realize, well, no, there's an eastern, there's a southern. Well, actually, there's a southwestern. Well, now there's a western. Several of them have gone extinct, right? So where do you draw the line? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a good point. I guess you have to weigh someone's motivations and then, and then help trust it. Uh, okay, let's. I, I know the basic outline of the story. Someone, the scimitar horned orcs, it's going extinct. Someone's like, hey, there's a bunch of them in Texas. Thank God. And then they want to say, okay, no one in Texas touch one. And people didn't like that. And it was counterproductive. How close is that to reality? The story I just told. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the word they is is uh, probably begs to be defined. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> well-meaning, probably people that thought they shouldn't be commercialized uh-huh. uh, because of other things and other places and other issues that were going on. But, but it, those particular group of people weren't looking at the perpetuation of that species and what was going on. And the minute they came in and they put those regulations on them. What was the regulation? Well, it had to do with movement, hunting, and barter, sale, exchange, and trade. It, they, had an, they were on the ESA, but there was an exemption. That's, and they, they removed the exemption. This has been 2012, I think. But, okay, on whose ESA? On a U- ours. Well, no. The, How are they on a U.S. listed species? Because list? that, it's global. Because it's, it's global. It's, it's not okay. just uh, U.S. species. Yeah. They yeah. don't look at Texas and make the law for the world. It's a global view of that species. And of course, but I didn't know there was even it's any. Global I didn't know there was like species. a governor. Like, was it I? Is it the ICUN? Like, who's the yeah. governing? Okay. Like, yeah. who's the governing body that would say like they're imperiled there? Don't mess with them in Texas. Well, ultimately, I think it was. Our decision for the ESA, but it, it's like if a species is imperiled, you know, wherever its native habitat is, right, then it's it's considered under the umbrella of the ESA. I mean, it's endangered, so any of those protocols can come into play in terms of what you can and can't do. So, so once it's endangered, then there's criteria under that endangered title, and that criteria may say barter, sell, exchange, hunt, transport. All those things can be under there. And what happened is that happened to that species of animal. And when it did, that thing, that that plan that was going on right before our eyes came to a crashing halt in Texas. And I'm going to speak for Texas because I'm more familiar with that. I mean, the plan being people distributing, allowing to breed. Yes, because yeah. commercialization was predicating those numbers. Mm-hmm. And and commercialization was the mother. It was pushing the numbers out yep. and, and making Because that, there was a market for those correct. animals that's in correct. the state. And a byproduct of that market was creating more of them. That's correct. To feed yeah, the market. And then you couldn't hunt them. Of course, you know, the market was dictating that people wanted to trade them and all, whatever people's view of that is, that's the reality of yeah. it, right? And so, you know, the market crashed. And then furthermore, if you had them on your uh, ram, I mean, this is an exception and all of our facilities are like that. We're conservation, so we don't actually hunt them here because we're trying to increase their numbers. But then you couldn't even hunt your own. 
So what do you do with them at that point? And here they go. They're you perpetuating. Know? Right. So there, you're saying there's some... And, and listen, it's it, for every listener out there, um, I'm not sure if the folks in this room like it or not. The very first thing that we did today was get a scimitar horn oryx and put an ear tag in it. So if you think about it, with uh, along the lines of every animal out there that have ear tags and are running around in pastures, that's what we're talking about in the commercialization right now. So... Um, there were individuals out there who had purchased scimitar horned oryx during this period where all of a sudden they're on and the... Sorry, if I'm but it's one quick. We, we tag them for a slightly different reason because we track them. We do a census count every year mm-hmm. of, you know, how many offspring, how many die, et cetera. And so he needs to track them. And for genetics reasons as well, you know, we, oh, that's animal number 28, whatever. So that's the reason primarily that we do that. So, but there's other folks out there who are like, I'm going to buy some of these. I'm going to have them specifically for the reason that I'm going to hunt them on my ranch. But then when that regulation came down, they just became animals that were competing against the other animals that had all of a sudden had more value. Yeah. And they can't do anything with them. They can't so, hunt them. You can't trade them. And, you know, so you, they're just paying to feed them. So what did happen to them? Like the, the numbers went down. Absolutely. People, they shot them out, they, people shot them out of spite. Well, what? you're not supposed to, but you know, I'm sure some of that happened. They did. Let's, let's, let's uh, be frank. They, the numbers dwindled. Yeah. For whatever reason, because the value now was not on the animal. The, the value is what brought the incentive to perpetuate the animal. Mm hmm. And we were in Texas, probably. Well, I know so. We've got more than anybody, and 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 he was selling them to a rancher. We were capturing them. We were moving them over here. We were moving them for this reason, this reason. But everybody had a reason to perpetuate that animal. Yeah. And when those regs came down, all of a sudden it disin it disincentivized us and ranchers. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, it's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app, and if you're giving an Aura as a gift. You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. 
gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated doesn't matter outdoor events turkey hunting playing sports beach days mountain adventures summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick it's clear why liquid iv is the number one powdered hydration brand in america tear pour live more One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. This is speculation, but was the was the first off what year are we talking about um is it that was 2012 yeah. it was res- the exemption was put back in in 2014 okay so there was so there's a two year window when this this was going on when this this the, sort of the prohibition on hunting prohibition on moving whether it's like a, an exemption that was lifted or not let's just describe it as like a, a prohibition on these activities it was a two year window did the number of animals during that two-year window actually go down? Yeah, they halved. And so, but they so what I'm saying is they weren't dying of old age. No, sir. <laughs> Not it's in just two that years. people were like, I mean, there's like a little bit of spite, but, right? Well, yeah, if I, I had I to can... venture a guess, like you saw how defensive that mother was. We talked about how aggressive the the bulls are in fighting. Yeah, uh, I'm sure they can be detrimental on other animals inside your pasture yeah. there too, or Definitely. they're just beating themselves to death sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, I can speak on, on the on the ranch's behalf, but for those two years, we, we had no breeding. I kept the males completely separate from the females. Again, because what what were we going to do with them? We had, we had our own, we have our own carrying capacity, which is top on a good year is 60 animals. Right now I got 45 animals um, with, with the addition of a bunch of young. Um, if this year continues to be as dry as it is now, I'm likely going to have to downstop or I'm going to run out of grass. I got you. So yeah, no, I we, see. We, so, could, we couldn't breed. Yeah. You know, because you had no outlet. We, yeah. Couldn't get rid of them. You had no outlet for the ones that weren't essential for your Correct. program. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and one thing that we, that we haven't mentioned, but, but I participated in this when that was lifted, 
we we had people that reached out and said, I want to multifacet my operation. Um, I don't want cattle anymore. I want something that has multi-value to it. So we, in a lot of cases, we had scimitars, we had neogai, we had other ungulates that were that were exotics that were also used to manage grass pastures, just like cattle. But we had a multi-value farm. We could breed them, we could sell them, we could hunt them, we could manage grass communities with them. So now, now we've got an incentive to own them. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at today, and that's why the numbers are here like they are. But they wouldn't have been had they not lifted that, and we had not organized and fought like we did. We would be down more so than we were at half at, at the time that thing would happen. The, and I just say this: I know there's a lot talked about the exotics industry, and especially in Texas. But that way, that was handled for conservation purposes. You know, was not a good thing. Yeah, and when it was when it was rescinded. Was it rescinded with a, man, you were right. That was a horrible idea. No. Oh, okay. I can answer that. <laughs> I can. I don't even need to think about that. It was, it was rescinded because of political clout and pressure. I got it. And that's the honest truth, or we'd still be right where we were. I got it. Texas spent thousands and thousands of dollars lobbying in, in, in Washington. It's funny because just in my circle, I have heard, and people not from con- the conservation biology world, I have heard people still grumbling about that. Well, as in their mind, like just like you know, oh, you want to talk about idiocy? Because remember they, when? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and they and they open a book, and uh. there in the book says they're almost or close to being extinct in another country, and these people in Texas are shooting them and, and commercializing sure. them. What in the world is going on yeah. here? Well, what's going on here is we're perpetuating these animals because they have a value. Yeah. No, I could see like it's not it's not a stretch. I, I don't mean to run around. You know, I don't want to sound like oh they're so stupid. But I mean, you can see how someone would draw that conclusion if they weren't really if they weren't like acutely aware of like all the dynamics in place and the motivations of people involved. If you went and wrote like some goofy, you know newspaper headline texans killing endangered yeah. species right they did and that, well that's they that's did. that course and there's the been a lot of articles written like that <laughs> they yeah. did because yeah. the some of us did interviews on those and they were tough interviews um there there's some folks out there who at that time and still today would rather these species not be here at all that any of them are hunted yeah period. no that's, that's a that, yeah, yeah i think that's a that's a that's a sentiment um I think it's a widely held sentiment among people who would that that I would consider be like the, the the radical animal rights agenda would put a very strong emphasis emphasis on individual animal experiences and that that would actually matter more to them than population level yeah, experiences. Exactly. And that's just I, I can't even have the argument. You know, what I mean, it's like I would I would be hard for me to sit with yeah. someone and have the argument. Yeah. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. It, it's um... It all happened when people didn't know what lug nuts were anymore. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that that's your litmus test. <laughs> that I love it. It's a good one. I, I, I heard someone else bring it up recently. Like, what, like, how did it go that just all of a sudden no one knows how to change a tire? <laughs> well, we're close. I'm using lug nuts. But, but, but really, um, as time goes on, 
that these challenges, these bicycles will have multiple riders on them that we that we have to defend um, to perpetuate an animal, to 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 make it uh, to, to be beneficial again, to have a value, because they're just people that don't know what lug nuts are. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- when you have that, it's a in my world, I, I deal with it every other day and, and I have to educate as hard as I can, but I also have to be a good mediator and understand how people think. Um, and that's why I'm so sensitive about, um, the, the merit of every good story and every good scenario is to preside, proceed both sides of the issue. You have to, you can't hold it back. And it's tough sometimes to sit in a room and talk to people about why this animal's doing good. Mm-hmm. We got to start with the nest. There, there's also a lot of crossover too, because of you know obviously as you well know, hunting brings in a lot of conservation dollars, right? That go to that, <clears throat> but particularly here with with the whole land rush, um, and he deals with it very closely. That, you know, if you didn't have this, you would have even more fragmentation and development and what have you. So, you know, we try to encourage people and and Bamberger is the best example of it, of, you know, you can have an exotic species, but you can manage it sustainably and still, you know, create great habitat for native wildlife as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, not everybody can do what they've done here because it's fantastic, but you know, you can still do that. And, you know, Warren is a specialist in that. And so that's, that's the other message that we're trying to get across. What percent of the species that your organization is involved with are native North American animals and what percent are Africa, Asia? Um, most of them are Africa, Asia, but we have a couple of grassland bird species. So, uh, the loggerhead shrike, mm-hmm. which, you know, Texas still has quite a few of them, but their native grassland prairie habitat, as you, you know, well know is shrinking and they've largely disappeared, you know, up in all the way up into Canada. So, <clears throat> um, you know, we support that and doing some releases up there where they do genomics testing to try to, you know, help the viability, uh, a couple other grassland species, um, even like the whooping crane, uh, the red wolf, um, is another one. And then most of the rest of them are exotic. So probably as a percentage, I don't know exact number, but you know, it's probably in natives, probably, you know, 25% or something yeah. there, thereabouts. To what, uh, to what degree, if you compare, let's say you're going to compare the Sahara, um, and just, I know it's hard, but the U S in general, mm-hmm. um, if you look at something like, like take something like the Pacific salmon, for instance, um, it's not an animal problem; it's a habitat problem. That's right, right. It's yep. like if if you took all the dams out of the Columbia watershed, your problem's yep. over. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 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 Chad in the Sahara with the scimitar horned oryx, I gather that it was it became like an animal problem. Yeah, it's multifaceted, if I understand you correctly. So it's a, it's a bush meat problem. Okay. Um, a lot of these areas, you know, historically, or, you know, at least last hundred years, war zone problem. It's a human footprint expanding problem. Mm-hmm. Um, 
a disease problem as well. Okay. You know, again, having to cohabitate with domestic livestock. And, and then when you get down, another aspect of what we do is that when we're looking at something like this, we enlist the help of, um, there's an offshoot of IUCN called CPSG, and uh, they do great work like population modeling and, you know, figuring out, you know, you have this many animals and, you know, you're going to add this many to it. And here's how often drought happens. Here's how much poaching, you know, you can kind of pretty well predict what's going to happen. Um, and when you get down below a certain number, you know, it, it becomes unsustainable. So, you know, there's species out there right now, you were alluding to it earlier, that if it's just left to their own over time, they're probably not going to make it. Yeah. You know, and fragmentation's another huge issue, right? You know, corridors are cut off, you know, so you, you don't get not only genetics crossing, but just being able to connect populations, have more room for them to disperse, you know, drought over here versus, you know, there's better range over here. So all those problems factor into it. I, I, I thought of another a more extreme uh, visual way of putting it. Let's say you just started flying C-130s into Chad and offloading thousands of scimitar horned orcs. At this moment in time, you would find that like in some number of years, you're probably going to be right back in the same situation all That's over exactly again. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Because A lot of the like, habitat's it's gone. It's not prepped. Yeah. Because or, it's localized. It's localized where they can, not that the... They, they can't make it somewhere else, but they, the extruding factors on it will only let it make it in that particular area where, the, where they have that protection. A lot of it's been converted to agriculture. Yep. That's another They've problem. They've lost grasslands. And how many do they have? So how many do they have on the ground now in a, in a sort of like semi-wildish state? In, Scimitars? Yeah, in Chad. About 150. Yeah. And what size, like on what? Is it a size of ground compared? comparable to where we're sitting right now I, no I, it's much I, larger much it's, larger. it's a huge area i don't have the exact number but it's but it is it's a big area yeah and steve do you know i think it's like i, I thought i heard it was the same size as like west virginia yeah it's like hundreds oh, of thousands millions big. of acres and yeah. they and they need to they're actively they need to be like actively defending the animals from poaching and other uh, incursions I don't know about defending, but, you know, there's been a lot of education that's gone on about it and, you know, they monitor it closely. Of course, you know, they're collared, right? Um, and the animals will disperse a lot. I think the biggest thing or, or one of the biggest things they've done is just education with um, the herders, the shepherders, you know, and I think so far that's going pretty well. Uh, but again, we're only talking 150 animals, so it's hard to gauge you know, it's not like there's 15,000 out there, is it, right? Is that number growing? It is. Yeah, they've, they've, had, uh, they've had offspring, and they keep actually, uh, they're, I think, doing another release right now as we speak. So, yeah, th there's definitely plans to add on to it. And I don't know if there's a total number um, that they're trying to get to. Yep. Um, but, yeah, they definitely want to grow. I mean, obviously, 150 of a herd animal is not you know, sufficient to, you know, you need to grow that. They can't call it stable yet. That's yeah, for sure. Not, yeah. It's still ever changing, but, but, uh, the only way probably to get it to where they someday will say we have a stable population is by help, uh, that they, they won't do it on their own. Probably if they, it would be so eons out, um, that, that it just, you couldn't monitor it. So the, the influx that, 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 groups like this can help is what's going to make it someday say we have a, in this area, we have a standardized herd. Now. I mean, just off the top of my head, again, I'm, I'm not a population biologist, and disclaimer, so, but, you know, 
I would think you'd have to have at least several hundred animals, ultimately not several thousand, sure. but whatever that number is, unless it's into the thousands, you're going to need to supplement from time to time. Got it. What, what is the stable number? Like, do we have an idea what that, that herd stability size is, self-sustaining? No, because that country is so different, it's, it's hard to classify animals per acre. Um, I, and I don't, I don't know the, the, the dynamics to that number, but I, I would say that their, their, their people over there know what, they're, what they need to do to where they could finally say, we do have a, a stable herd here. They move a lot. They're, they're mig- yeah. yeah, they're, 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 they're right, And the larger the herd, the larger the range needs yeah. to be. They're nomadic. And yeah. it's more it's more sparse than you know. Yep. Steve has this fantastic grass here. <laughs> well, that <laughs> driving into this property is a lot more. Yeah, and it rains into this property. Nice. Is, grass, yeah. It'll rain in one area uh, of this of uh, this area where they've got them, and they'll move to that area because a lot of their all their ecology is steered around perpetuation. So they know to go to that area, uh, and it's timed with all their parturations and all the thing they do, and so it. it it will take time, um, years before they'll ever be able to say that's a standardized herd and we're comfortable. Now. I mean, this is ideal for them here in terms of what we're trying to do. And, you know, these guys have done such a great job and, you know, burns and, you know, not, you know, they don't graze the rest of it and not, hadn't had a history of overgrazing, all those kind of things. So it's ideal habitat, you know. For, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. driving through here, this country probably never looked like this prior to folks putting up fences right <laughs> i mean you guys don't have well, the natural competition out here because you're you're managing it yeah just heavily, right? the grasses. Well, you're, yeah. you're seeing 50 years of intensive management yeah maybe this is how it looked like 200 years ago or yeah. closer as long to as the it. bison weren't traveling through yeah he, he's being pretty humble yeah because i do what he does he's worked his rear end off out <laughs> I, here. I see it it's amazing and, and and he's got he's got the backing and he's got the knowledge and that's why you see the gro- garden growing like it is and it's a and, and you know to the naked eye it's hard to understand what he sees and what i see on these properties because it th- this is years and years of our lives to get these grass communities back to where they're at mm-hmm. it just doesn't happen i overnight. mean it, this land has transformed so much i grew up around here and it's you know, uh, Native Americans kept this burned off to a large degree with natural fire. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure you, you've been around here now. It's changed tremendously. The juniper choked, yeah. you know. And so he's done, restored it, whatever you want to call natural. <laughs> yeah. You want to call that natural, you know, it used to. But certainly from a wildlife perspective, it's... Uh, Steve, what'd your bird count go from? Uh, the first, the first counts done in, in like 1970, 1971, um, they, they found 48 species. These are year round surveys. Okay. And today we're over 220. Really? God, that's amazing. That's incredible, man. So if you had to boil that down, that's like, is it, it's water, water and grass recovery? Diversity of habitat. So when Mr. Bamberger so way, bought, way more than just more grass. Right, absolutely. When Mr. Bamberger first bought this property, it was uh, in 1969. It was basically a cedar, a cedar forest, a cedar break. Right. right. It was very much clad with cedar, like you see a lot of the hill country today. From fire suppression and From fire suppression, which is juniper. Oh, Everybody calls it cedar down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Overgrazing, uh, overgrazing led to that a lot. Um, so yeah, and. Early 70s is set about restoring the place, and that basically removing a lot of the juniper, not all of it because this is a native tree, um, restoring the grasslands, also giving our, our native deciduous hardwoods a chance 
to become a hardwood forest again. Um, and then with that came back water was one of the first things that came back to the ranch that wasn't here. Um, we have quite a bit of water here. Yep. Um, and then with you, you get that's such a diversity of habitat and especially that edge habitat, you know, that transition between forest to grass or water's edge, that sort of thing. So, yeah. I, mean, I imagine some of that, some of those numbers, I mean, it wouldn't account for significant number, but some of those are sort of things on a more national scale. You know, Absolutely. Like like some raptors, right? Absolutely. I don't know if you got a peregrine on your thing, but yep. it could be because of peregrine activities happening hundreds of miles right. away. So that's an impressive increase, Definitely. man. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. But, and, uh, and improved habitat, as, as Steve said, uh, brings uh, diversity of wildlife. So a lot of these ranches now that, that have the finances and the skills to do all this, they're not only benefiting uh, exotics, uh, deer, they're, it's, it's all species, mammals, reptiles, uh, bird life, all, avian life, all this is, is benefiting. Well, from you guys people. have a bat cave. Yeah. yeah. And we're yeah. Not, not talking about like a whole man bat cave. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, no. And that's what happens when you get a commitment uh, because we've done it and restored it. Uh, not, I'm not talking about here. I've done it on other ranches like Steve's done, but we see the benefits. And this bird life is a classic example of responding to improved habitat. That doesn't happen by accident because now they have these levels they can live in, edge effect, hardwood forest, uh, all, all the things that they've done out here. So, yeah, I mean, Bamberg is like a modern-day example. And if you've ever seen Tending the Wild, at book in California about Native Americans managing the landscape over there. Mm. This is an example of that. I mean, literally, I, I saw a study recently where, um, I, I don't know how they came to this conclusion, but researcher figured out that um, this part of the world anyway, 85% of the fires were set here by Native Americans. Now, it only burned 40% of the landscape mm -hmm. because, you know, lightning fires would just go, right? So they had controlled burns, and they were managing it for wildlife, you yeah. know, to bring back, you know, whatever, you know, That's pecans, walnuts. Yeah, attract wildlife, whatever. And so he's actually kind of gone back, even though this is a modern, he's gone back to much more the way it was in terms of managing the land for wildlife. Got it. Uh I got two more big questions for you. One's, one's pretty concrete and one's theoretical. Uh, the, so the scimitar horned orcs, uh, they came full circle. Okay. They were in the Sahara. They were for whatever reason, lost to, you know, lost to us, uh, collectors, whatever brought them here. They were kept in zoos. They went extinct in the wild. They went back. Um, what's the next? Like, who who's in line to have that happen again? Most immediately, like what like what species is that, that you're working on? Is like you have the the clearest path exists to being like they're going to go back on the ground. Well, the two other ones that um, uh, of our species that are being worked with right now, actually in the same preserve, are the Dama gazelle um, and the addicts. Mm -hmm. And there were some remnant populations there, somewhere between 100 and 300 animals, but scattered about. This is this is in the same area in Chad. Yeah, okay. in Niger. They so they were they've translocated some. 
Uh, but yeah, they're they're releasing. I think right now actually some Dama Gazelle. Okay, so, so they're ready to yeah, release. We're doing it. Texas it's, animals are. It's going already there. happened, and it's well, it's again, it's this multi-step process, right? Where uh, maybe some of them came here historically, and then they went over there, and now it's two or three generations there, and the third generation oh, yeah, got habituated, you know, and then they they let them go, right? Yeah, yeah. Like so. you can't like it, it's not really practical to track the individual. Exactly. But it, it's, it's bloodline or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that's why the genomics is so important and why we want to keep sequencing and testing these, these animals because we want to know if we have valuable traits or whatever. Like Steve, you know, got his report on his, his female scimitar that, hey, in the future, you know, that bloodline, maybe not that particular animal, but that bloodline we want going over there, right? Um, and and so that that's kind of the future so that, when the conditions are ripe to do more of these, we're, we're ready to do it. Mm -hmm. um, remember early on in our conversation, we talked about the idea that if it's not where, if an animal's not where it's from, that like it doesn't count. Now, well, well no, I don't mean that because that, that's going to sound wrong because I am a very avid wild turkey hunter, okay? I hunt wild turkeys in a state that turkeys aren't from. I mean, they're not that far down I, I could drive in a day i could drive in a day to where they're from but they're not from there okay so i i love them like my children um so like i you know well not quite <laughs> in some ways more yes yeah. in some ways less in some ways less but so so i get it it's like there, there, there's not like a it's, it's not a black and white issue in terms of native you know native animals and non-native animals but What's your sort of like, like what's your take? If, if we looked at that, that you determined that for whatever reason we determined that the Sahara, okay, since we talked about that a bunch, it's just like you get to a point where you're like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's divided up, it's war torn, not getting any better. It just isn't going to happen. Do you then lose interest in the orcs or do you go like, okay, plan B is this part of Texas is Africa? And there's no, and, and you know that it's not ever going to be a reintroduction issue. Well, I guess there's two things. That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's very yeah, loaded. Yeah. I mean, one, I think, you know, th there's a difference between, like, say, this part of Texas or letting them run rampant and just keeping the species uh, alive, not letting them go extinct. Uh -huh. For And you could have a philosophical debate about that, a lot of reasons, right? You know, they deserve to live, you know, uh, value in them about what we discover about their genes or, you know, it could be use of other animals, ex you know, all kinds of yeah, reasons the old, for like, that. Yeah, could be a cure for cancer. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. Um, but then also, you know, in terms of these assurance populations, well, what do things look like 150 years from now? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. It'd be a pretty cocky decision to yeah. be like, ain't going to happen. Right. So yeah. it's kind of like if we're going to keep them, then we might as well keep them in a setting where they can do well, right? In, in sufficient numbers with enough diversity. So when there's an opportunity, you know, we can, we're ready. You know, we can put them back. Over. And I say we, I mean collective, not just my organization, 
right? So that that's one of the things. And, you know, there's also, I think, an educational component. Um, there's even, these guys have done it. We've actually partnered, I know it sounds bizarre, but uh, with a virtual reality organization to kind of create some environments where people can see what these animals look like, hmm. you know, in their native habitats or I'm normally, oppo- I'm normally opposed to virtual I, reality, but I like I hear it. you. I, I like Hey, it. that was my initial reaction. I when got it. When my kids want to do it, I'll be like, you can do that one thing with the animals. Right, exactly. <laughs> but from the standpoint of does that raise awareness and does that get them interested and, you know, generate some, I mean, as we know, we're becoming a more urban world mm-hmm. and people are moving cities. And I'm a big believer that if, if you don't have your feet on the ground, if you're not out doing stuff, then you just don't have the same attachment or connection to it. So in lieu of that, do these, does something like that help? And if it does, then maybe there are opportunities in the future. So I think those are some of the arguments. I know it's not black and white. Um, and, you know, it, it is a little odd sometimes. You drive around, you see something looks like Africa, and, you know, you see more and more of it. But, you know, we're focused really on the conservation aspect, and I think you can make a strong case for, regardless of what's happening on the ground, that we at least want to keep these remnant populations, you know, going for the future, whatever the future yeah. is. Someday it just hit me. Someday I'm going to write a dystopian novel. It'll be that humans are all gone, virtually all gone, and it'll be like some small group of people <laughs> trying to put all the animals back where they belong. Well, I think Jeff Bezos <laughs> had that idea that one day we'll be living, orbiting the planet and repopulate. Yeah, you know. and I'll be like, okay, but before I die, I got to make sure to put these things back and those things yeah. back. <laughs> so I'll, we're coming around the table, so I'll put my two cents in. It'll be short. I think the limiting factors besides population dynamics will probably be evolving wildlife diseases. Oh, go on. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that, and I and that's my summary. We got to do another show now, or you won't get it out of me. Uh-huh. Well, no, give me give, give a little more there. Well, so I I, I think you're saying this it, is like a like a like a conservation challenge. I I think that absolutely, but but a, a zoonosis. If you look at what we don't know about wildlife reservoirs and human interaction with diseases, uh-huh. we're on the pioneering edge of where all these lay. And I think as time goes by, we're going to find more and more reservoirs that might mutate and affect humans or vice versa. And so I believe that that as time goes by, the science will develop that there might be a species you can't do anything with because of evolving wildlife diseases that may affect populations. And guess what? If it affects a human, who's going to be first? Yeah. I mean, this gets into strange territory, but what if there's a few species that are resistant? Well, not after the, the last couple of years, it doesn't feel too strange. It doesn't. Yeah, it does. Exactly. What was the What was the question again? Well, I mean, back to your other question, it's like, what if you find, you know, some traits in a few of these species that are closely related, one or two, that are beneficial or disease resistant, you know? Could that keeping those alive? Could that be useful? I mean, that gets into strange territory. I yeah, it, no, it, it, it can, it can. But where the bridge starts getting weak is where is where there the, the possibility exists to jump from wildlife reservoirs to humans, mm-hmm. and typically that's from a mutation. Yeah. And so, if you really look at a lot of things that are happening with humans now, with illnesses and things, and look back at wildlife reservoirs, you don't have to be a rocket yeah. scientist to figure out what's happening. No, it's so, becoming, yeah, I think that, that, that that's entering sort of the public consciousness absolutely. more as we have this like pretty spirited absolutely. debate about 
you know, bats, wildlife markets, right. and then these new strains of, of COVID that right. seem to, and then, you know, like this 60% of the whitetails, 60% of the whitetail deer taken out of, I think, Indiana um, had been exposed to COVID. Yep. Well, so, Quebec, yeah, right? We just, we just, just had this, right? Like the COVID-19 into the deer herd, that deer herd spit it back out into the human population. Mm. And it's very, very close to COVID-19, but it's not quite the same. Yeah. Right. I and, mean, that, and, and, and so, I don't care what you think of COVID. That's right. But that's something to pay attention to. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when you sail across the sea and I'm not being a pessimist because I, I'm a biologist, it's what I do for a living. But when you sail across the, the sea to take a reservoir out, to bring it somewhere else to do something else with, mm-hmm. there's always a chance. Yeah. But but I but I think we're on the very infancy of, of where this is going to go. Sure. And, that, but, uh, and but I, also, I wanna, just I want to add on to the thing you're saying, because you talk like there, there's organizations like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Okay. Their, their business for, for, well, they had, uh, you know, I hate to oversimplify it. Their business had been twofold. It was habitat, right? right? And then restoration of herds. With CWD, right now, moving herds around, that's not happening, man. Do you know I mean? Like, the appetite for that stuff, is, it's just not happening. And it's like, it's because of this understanding of disease transmission that we weren't talking about Yep, He's before. on ground zero for that. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, we could, we'll be here till 2 o'clock in the morning. But, but, but I, I think my message is it's not as easy as the wishes and the money to save an animal now. Mm-hmm. There's, more, there's more to look and see through the fishbowl, and I'll end mine. I'll pass it to Steve now. Oh, well, now that you said that, <laughs> I would say short of disease, uh, here, here at the Bamberger Ranch, our philosophy is uh, it's our responsibility as long as we can afford to do it as long as that species is not detriment to our native species and our landscape, our land, mm-hmm. uh, we should do it. So that's something, that's something you look at that you're yeah. like trumping. This is native wildlife, but right now those things can be harmonious. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you guys get funded? I mean, I'm assuming your funding doesn't come from the residents of Chad. <laughs> no. So our membership institutions, uh, fund us, and primarily, and then, um, of course, and they're, they're great. <clears throat> they really are good at supporting our work. Um, and then we get some small fees from other program members as well. And then of course, you know, individual donors, um, uh, benefactors. So, um, you know, we, it, it's obviously been tough the last couple of years, you know, with pandemic and what have you. Got so, um, fundraising has been yeah, tough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, we need to do a lot more things like genomics testing. Um, and so, you know, funding helps for that. So uh, if anybody wants to go to our website, conservationcenters.org, we have a donate. It's certainly appreciated. The one good thing is that uh, genomics testing has come way down in price and it's only going to get cheaper. So, um, but, you know, conservation work, as Warren was saying earlier, and uh, testing to Steve done, has done all the work he's done is that it's not cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes a lot of effort. There's a lot of science involved. It's not just turning the animals loose, you know, transport, you know, breeding the whole nine yards. Um, so, you know, we're, we need support just uh, like every other conservation organization out there. Do you guys uh, accept volunteers? 
feel like you might get some volunteer requests. Um, we get some. Um, it, it's more for things we need in office because we're science based. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we really leverage. It's our facilities and our our uh, ranches like Steve. You know, they really do the work. Yep. You know, well, I feel like people are going to be like, "Ah, oh, come out and wrestle that orcs." Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and I'll it, show you how to grab one. And that's <laughs> that's also why for this model to work, this consortium model. I just mentioned one other thing that there's over 500 species survival plans um, in in the the AZA, the zoo world. It's estimated that in the next few years, for a variety of reasons, um, both financial practicality, that half of those may go away. And so this model, this consortium, is going to be very important to picking those species up. And and well, they'd go away for what reason? Funding issues, uh, viability, funding, viability. Okay. You know, uh, just hey, this isn't. You know, uh, don't want to say it's not working, but you know, it may not be sustainable. Not the best resources. place to put the money or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, habitat, all kinds of things, right? And so, so, so there's a, a, like a plan, and it's more than just a piece of paper. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in development. I mean, this is all happening right now, yeah. you know, as we speak. So we're looking at how can we leverage this existing model, which has been very successful. And, you know, we have a great end-to-end result case right here and do that with other species. But as these species uh, become available, so to speak, yeah. um, you know, we, we need... Uh, support to you know help get people involved and and that ties back into the earlier discussion which is you know from a market standpoint uh bamberger's a little different but you know these other facilities the private ones and even uh, some of the public ones they have to make a living so to speak you know so um you know they have to be able to move these animals you know and make it work for them and and if they can't they're you know, it's not that they wouldn't have an interest in helping conservation, but it, it just won't work for them. Yeah, I'm with you. What is the liability? You said liability earlier. Like, when it's like, oh, well, I want to have scimitar horned oryx on my place. <laughs> well, like what? well I'll wonder, give you a really good example. Please do. Because the only people that will insure my company is Lloyds of London. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because, that complicated. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my, my, my farms are from here to that canyon over there that i have to fill out but um you're like well we go up in helicopters so so here's a good example of liability you take what he's willing to do today uh because his his whole approach is about education and helping look at what they do out here to educate the public we got in a pickup truck we had a lady that was sitting on the tailgate we had a calf on the ground with a mother that's not bluffing we had a driver of a pickup truck so all those things come into play about liability. That was like two minutes into our trip. <laughs> That's right. And so Might as well get, away, yeah. get out of the way. So the liability to include people in what we've done, it is absolute, um, almost impossible at times for a guy like me to include the public in what I do because of the dangers. Got it. He's very organized, very, but don't think he doesn't have uh, risk. Sitting in that pickup truck's a risk. Yeah, I'm with and, you. And so uh, if you if you turn a scimitar out, just he's going to be on his own. What if somebody walked up on that calf? Uh, so this is all about this. This just this just doesn't happen by accident. There's a lot of responsibility and a lot of things you have to do. Yeah, I can see with liability because there's like a there's an actual like ownership path. I mean, 
If you get gored Ab- by a deer, absolute. you're like, whose damn deer is this? You'd be like, oh, it's just the land's deer. It's like Ar- it, sort of belongs to the, it belongs to the state. But it'd be like, no, that oryx is... Yeah, and it's already happened. Well, Bill's oryx. It's already happened. Yeah, I got you. There's also the whole animal care aspect. And we have all kinds of experts that we draw from, you know, veterinarian, disease experts. Yep. I mean, they, these people are specialists. They've been doing this for, you know, decades, right? And, you know, someone like Steve that's been doing this for a long time. So it's not just anybody can show up. Um, you know, and, and do this. And so we always have a vetting process that we go through. We have an ethics document when they want to join a program. And, you know, we, we do a whole check on them to make sure they know what they're getting into. They're capable. They have experience, you know, and, and every, there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. Not just anybody can get in the black rhino game. Exactly. exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> For a number of reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, tell so people can come visit this. So tell people how to come visit this place. Oh, the Bamberger Ranch, uh, we're not open to the public. Uh, it's all by reservation. Uh, but, yeah, uh, look on our website, bambergerranch.org. Um, we do we do a, a multitude of things. We, uh, we see a lot of kids, uh, about 1,500 kids a year. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot, but um, you've met. Uh, sounds like a lot to me. I have zero. That that's, sounds like a lot. Five, that's 500 times more than but, how many I deal with. But you've met, the, you've met a quarter of the staff. Uh, we've only got really four people here uh, that deal with the, the people ranching or the ecotourism aspect. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they can visit the website and come out for a tour. Uh, we do also uh, offer a whole series of workshops and landowner workshops uh, to just give people new landowners in the area an idea of how to manage. Was oh, that right? Land. That's, that's great. Oh, that's, that's cool, great. man. So if someone if someone bought some property in the vicinity, they might come out to be like, "What's possible? You could come here and see what's yeah. possible." Yeah, yeah. We show you how to get on a smaller scale of what we have here. That's oh. awesome. Hmm. That's nice. He has some really interesting demonstrations, like what happens when you chop the juniper and looking at the water retention of grasses versus you know cedar and how that helps your water table, et cetera. It's it's really good stuff. Got it. And then your inner child, you might be missing out. We do have dinosaur footprints on the place. What? Oh, uh, we, we have places where we collect fossils. Oh man! You, you got to wrangle an oryx, so yeah. That's what that's uh, not most of our I got public. to cuddle. I got to cuddle one. <laughs> you, did, you, did. you wrangled one. I cuddled that, one. That was a special treatment. Just it, for you. And then, how, how do people go find? Like, if they want to get the broader picture of the organization, what's the best place to go look? Yeah, just conservationcenters.org. That's plural. And then go on there. You can see our programs and find out uh, just a wealth of information and our member institutions, who we work with, etc. How to make a donation. Yep, right there on the homepage. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you, Our pleasure. Pleasure. It's a privilege to be here with you. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. 
Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.